Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, this is FEPS Talks, uh, the podcast series of uh, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. My name is Lars Lander. I'm the Secretary General of FEPS. My guest today is Professor Martin Zeleb-Kaiser. Um, welcome, Martin, to the program. Martin is Professor at the University of Tübingen, but I should recall that uh, first time we met um, in Oxford about uh, 10 years ago when um, we were experiencing the social consequences of the great financial economic crisis and recession, and the um, European Commission was actually coming forward with uh, the so-called Europe 2020 strategy, which a lot of people um, unfortunately have forgotten since uh, those times. But the reason I invited Martin to this conversation is that we believe there is a different different trend now. For many people, the reference point is the so-called pillar of social rights, uh, which was um, adopted about four years ago in uh, the city of Gothenburg, and earlier this year supplemented by a so-called action plan. But now very important practical steps um, are coming, especially on critical issues like the minimum wage. Uh, Just recently on this single dossier, two important developments, one in the European Parliament, which uh, adopted the proposal uh, to enter a trilogue on uh, the minimum wage directive proposed by the Commission, and then um, the new so-called traffic light coalition of Germany deciding that in the national context, they should be, by law, about a 20% increase of the lowest wage in the country. And we speak about Germany, which just about 10 years ago, if I can use it um, again, this time frame, Germany didn't really want to hear about the minimum wage even 10 years ago. Is this a period when um, the social dimension of Europe, but also very important continental member states, is taken more seriously? Uh, Do we see signs like this? First of all, thank you very much, Laszlo, for having me on this podcast. Yes, I think in Germany, there has been a change. And um, if we recall, not only, you know, 10 years ago, but actually there was a paradigmatic change 20 years ago, when also in other countries, new labor, the new social democracy was in power, competitiveness was seemed to be also becoming the DNA of or the need to achieve competitiveness for nation states um, of the social democratic parties. This has changed. And also what has changed is, I think, the focus on Europe. And let me first highlight with regards to the new coalition um, that will come to office probably next week, is that there is a strong commitment to European integration. They even talk of a federal Europe. And I think that is really something which we have not seen for the last decade or so, a real commitment by Germany, by the Social Democrats, and especially the Greens. And yes, there has been an increase in, or there will be an increase in the minimum wage from 960 euros an hour to 12 euros an hour, which is really, really significant and which will be implemented shortly in next, early next year. On that front, one has to say that within the European Union, we also seen progress in terms of if we look at the European Labour Authority, also 10 years ago, probably people were saying, you know, will this ever happen? I think that is, was a big step two years ago. Now, last year, moving to Bratislava, getting into action. On the other hand, the European Labour Authority can only do as much as it is authorized to do. It's basically coordinating and not itself enforcing. 
And I think that is an issue which we have to remind ourselves that there is a lot to do in terms of enforcement. Also in countries such as Germany, up to now, the authority, the agency um, responsible for enforcement in Germany of the minimum wage has 2,000 unfilled posts to actually enforce the minimum wage. One step was in 2015 to get the first minimum wage enacted. Then there was there's an organization which is um, part of the customs authority to enforce it, uh, but it has difficulty of actually filling posts. So this is something you know perhaps the, the government needs to rethink of remuneration of people who should fill those posts to make it more attractive to do that. Because currently, if we take 2019 as the baseline, the probability of a farm where we see a lot of seasonal workers and where we know also. Due to the, um, you know, ELA has, the European Labour Authority has a, put an emphasis on seasonal work. In Germany, we know that in farms, on farms, minimum wage violations are quite often. But the probability of a farm being inspected in Germany is 420 years, once mm. in 420 years, which obviously is not very satisfactory. And I hope that the new government will not only increase the wage, but also add some force to the enforcement uh, because we, in that sector, uh, it's also really difficult to rely on social partners because the trade unions, although they try and there's, uh, you know, fair farm work initiatives by trade unions, but it's very hard to organize them and use trade unions as enforcement mechanisms. Um, so that is really good to see in the European Union that we have ILA 10 years ago, in my view, probably unthinkable that there will be such an agency. Also that in a country like Germany, there's a clear commitment to further European integration and at the national level increase in the minimum wage. I think also if we look into next year, so we already see this at the European level with a European minimum wage progress, but we will also, I think, hopefully see next year see progress in the minimum income directive or recommendation, which I think is to some extent the creates a, a very, although a very low, but a reservation wage, which everyone should be entitled to at the very, very bottom, right? So basically, that people are not even forced, not forced necessarily into real exploitative work, but that human dignity in the European Union is adhered to by, in every member state, providing a decent minimum income guarantee, which in the past has been lacking. I think um, at this point, I have to ask you to explain why this needs to happen at the European Union level, because you have been working a lot on the concept of European social citizenship. At the same time, there would be many who would say, but the welfare states are national and um, various uh, social models are national or regional, like Scandinavian model, for, for example. And I mentioned the Scandinavians because, for example, in the case of the minimum wage, it is the Scandinavian countries which are not necessarily friendly to the proposal even at this stage. But what is the point in your perspective of raising question of minimum wage, minimum income to the European level? So I think think if we are a community of shared values and human dignity, as I understand it, should be a core value of the European Union. And if we look at the Charter of Fundamental Rights, human dignity is core to that charter. I'll get to that in a second. Now, if we want to have a social Europe, the minimum, and this is for me, is the minimum of social citizenship within the European Union, that wherever EU citizen lives, whether it's in Greece, in Germany, in Lisbon, in Portugal, in Budapest, wherever, if that person does not have any income, 
the state should and needs to guarantee a minimum income, and that is to guarantee human dignity. If the European Union is about social values, this is the core. And most countries, if we or in Western Europe, many countries, even though they have different welfare state regimes, in terms of what the level should be, there are some similarities. But there are some countries which have not a very strong historical experiences, let's put it that way, with minimum income protection. Whether it's some Mediterranean countries, whether it's some uh, Central and Eastern European countries, there are issues. And for me, if Europe wants to be a social Europe, this is the minimum that we can do. And it's about human dignity. So this is one thing, because only if we have that, we also, by having that, minimize the risk of exploitation. Because if people have at least some money to buy food, they do not have to enter the most exploitative work. Even if we have good enforcement mechanisms, if there's no minimum income guarantee, people might be forced to enter such work or forced to leave their country of birth, not necessarily voluntarily, because but they don't have any option. However, at the same time, I would argue that such a directive as it is envisaged is, for one, very difficult to develop and to get agreement on, because if we look at the various levels that we currently have, and currently, as I understand it, all member states have a minimum income protection, but the replacement rates are from about 10% of the poverty threshold to, to about, I think, Ireland with the highest getting at 58 or 59. So all of them are already still below the poverty threshold, but a huge variation. And we really need to push up that minimum in those countries that have a really low one because benefit levels, because people cannot live of that and might be achieved to be forced to leave the country. At the same time, and that is not yet in that in the various proposals, what we need to have is some protection for those people who are moving to look for new jobs in other member states and are unprotected in those member states, because they, although they can export unemployment insurance benefits from another member states for the duration of three months. But due to the uneven economic development within the European Union, that exportable unemployment benefit in many countries will not be sufficient to live a life above a minimum subsistence level. So we need to find some way of dealing with that. And that would be ideal at a European level if one could use at least for a short period of time some EU funds to make that available, perhaps for three months as for the duration of other people that are more privileged because they live in Western Europe and it's easy for them to export their unemployment benefits at a sufficient level that this would also be available to others. Because we know that in cities like Berlin, Brussels, Paris, the majority of homeless people in those cities are EU citizens that have recourse to social assistance at the current stage in those countries. That is a real issue where I think we really need to think about Europe on one hand regulating, setting minimum standards for human dignity in every member state that we do not have necessarily involuntary migration because there's no support in country A or country B, was at the same time having to deal with the issue of providing support for those who have gone to other countries to look for jobs. And due to the fact that they are coming from Central and Eastern Europe, a disadvantage in their mobility compared to Western Europeans who could easily export their unemployment benefits and have 
a sufficient reservation wage that they would not have to enter exploitative employment relationships. Martin, thank you very much for this explanation. Obviously, then comes a practical question about uh, the funding. Some of these policies which you outlined obviously would require a greater budget, also a greater budget at the European Union level, and consent and contribution from important countries, including Germany. How do you see the feasibility? I think that the feasibility is still really difficult to achieve that because it's, uh, you know, why should we support these people? That is difficult. It might be easier, and that's what I indicated already earlier, if we move the Charter of Fundamental Rights and make that applicable throughout the European Union, not only in cases where we implement EU law, but also where national laws are um, and act, uh, implemented. If we do that and actually have a universal kind of applicability of the Charter of Fundamental Rights with human dignity as a main pillar, that will force countries mm -hmm. to some extent to think about it. Because I think if we perhaps go down this road and not necessarily the economic road and initially put into focus that you know, country X or Y has to pay X amount for that and that. But if we start the discourse or change the discourse to it's about human dignity and achieving human dignity for all EU citizens, that might actually kind of refocus the debate away initially from what we see as, you know, us against them, perhaps very often Western Europe, the Bruegels, the others. Um, I think that might be a way forward, although it's not guaranteed. It's really difficult, but we have to acknowledge that within the European Union, it's about 17 million citizens, EU citizens, that do not live in their country of origin. So the group is quite big. And for some countries, the group of people moving annually is also quite big. And I think we just have to really think about it. Uh, if we put it in comparative perspectives, and we have a research project funded by the German Federal Ministry of labor and social affairs on on this in terms of how other federations dealt with freedom of movement and the issue of where people could access social assistance right mm -hmm. historically it's really fascinating to look at the north german confederation so in the second part of the 19th century same issues right so you had issues that was in the context of nation building but the arguments were very similar and also citizenship initially at that stage was the citizenship of Hamburg, the citizenship of Prussia, and so forth. And then there was one common citizenship of the North German Confederation, right? And it was derived from that, from those nation state, tiny nation states. And the argument was the same, and people were pushed back, you know, please go home, um, used for work. And once they could no longer work, they were expelled. Obviously, this is no longer in such a way the case in the European Union. But if we look at some countries, there are issues of how are people treated. If we look at the United States, also really interesting. And many people don't know that the United States does not have a federal social assistance program as such, but the separate states set eligibility criteria and also benefit levels. The economic development in the United States is also quite varied. If people, you know, just travel through Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, the South versus Vermont, Connecticut, huge differences. Not as stark as perhaps between Romania and Luxembourg, but also huge, right? And here, really fascinating, in the 1930s, the state of California was putting state troopers on the border, police officers, 
to actually keep other poor people out, which we have not seen in the European Union. But then there were also issues of people until the late 1960s being asked to go back home where they came from, the state they came from, the state that they had residence in. Similar issues as we do currently for people who are not workers and that should you know, lose in some countries their residence rights of the European Union and asked to go back to their country of residence or citizenship. Now in the United States, we had the Supreme Court in 1969 actually saying that based on the 14th Amendment of the, in terms of equality, equal rights, that that would be discriminatory, that one should not, could not create two types of citizens, you know, if thinking of citizens within the state, uh, and therefore that that was discriminatory and no longer allowed. It reaffirmed that decision in 1999 when the state of California once again tried to limit access to social assistance by people moving into the state. By the way, really interesting, the state of California used a similar mechanism as currently Austria is using with child benefits in the European Union that where there is an issue of whether that is um, an infringement of the treaty where the Commission has started infringement proceedings against Austria. So the issues are not new. We can look into history. People say sometimes say Europe is different to other states. But actually, if we look at the concept of citizenship derived from citizenship of member states and the European Union. If we look at the North German Confederation or even the United States, it's very, very similar. And it's a question of where we're moving. And if we are moving to a more federal Europe and we want to keep the European Union together, we actually have to answer these difficult questions. But Laszlo, this obviously does not answer you the question, Martin, how feasible is it and where's the funding come yeah. from? So but you didn't get the answer to that. Of course. No, we can set that question aside. I just uh, wanted to uh, mention that in the recessionary period 2012-13, also in Germany, there was a lot of concern about the so-called Armutszuwanderung, um, you know, poor people migrating in the European Union and, um, you know, discussing heavily what uh, entitlements they have, what they don't, and potentially returning to them, them to their home uh, countries. But is it not the case that this thinking has evolved since uh, towards trying to help to ensure that the less developed EU member states also experience social convergence and not only economic one? I think in the last five, six years, the concept of upward convergence has been used uh, very widely. We just need to find the right tools through which the European Union can assist this upward social convergence to happen. I think it, this is a really fair point. Uh, upward convergence, great. I think, you know, if you look at, I think it should really be moving forward and, you know, making greater progress. But to some extent, if you look at young people in some countries, not only in Central and Eastern Europe, but also in the south of Italy or in Greece, huge problems. You know, US commissioner promoted the youth guarantee, real great progress. But still, if we look at unemployment rates there, it is stark. And if we understand the European Union, on the one hand, as a common market, a common labor market, what we need to have is actually more flexibility in the European Union. And if it leads to consequences of emigration and some shortages in especially essential jobs in some countries, I do realize that it's a it's a real issue. But first, we cannot limit freedom of movement only to some people. It is a right of all citizens. And what we then need to do is actually design policies, how we can deal with these issues. If I may, um, and if we look at migration mobility in the European Union at a regional level, 
the biggest outmigration that we see from a former, in inverted comma, socialist country is from East Germany to West Germany, right? So it's much higher than outmigration from Romania. And what I want to highlight is that we see similar problems of certain skilled workers, essential workers that have left not enough doctors, perhaps. We see that in the east of Germany. We see that in parts of Romania, where 3,500 GPs are leaving annually, or doctors are leaving annually. It's a big issue. But the big question is not necessarily how do we limit that freedom of movement, but how do we make it attractive? Perhaps the using the European Social Fund to pay scholarships, similar kind of things for people to go to those regions. By the way, Eastern Finland is very similar in terms of depopulated areas. So we have an in inverted commas depopulated areas, areas of you know where we need actually more investment by the European Union, also in providing because it's a consequence of freedom of movement, providing essential services. And the question is whether one can use the European Social Fund or similar actually to provide, for example, for scholarships and then have a commitment of someone who becomes a doctor, a teacher to stay in a certain region, whether that's East Germany, Eastern Finland or Romania. So in totally agreement with you, we need upward convergence. But for young people to wait another 10 years might be just a lost decade and their future lost. So therefore, I think we need a multi-pronged approach, upward convergence, a more integrated labor market, and a European social fund which deals with the issues, particularly of in depopulated areas that are depopulated because we have freedom of movement, because we acknowledge that in the European Union, freedom of movement is a social right, a political right, and core to what constitutes EU citizenship. Absolutely. I think maybe a mistake was made some time ago by uh, too much disconnecting the cohesion policy from social policy. And this link rather has to be reinforced. And um, some colleagues also have been floating the concept of a social imbalances procedure to reflect um, a little bit the so-called macroeconomic imbalances procedure that use what is called the European semester in order to provide the guidance. Because indeed, there is no replacement to the financial resources the EU could transfer to the underdeveloped, depopulating, depressed region. But in order to provide a mechanism, a method for guidance, the effort is now to define you know, what role the European semester can play and within that a kind of uh, social imbalance procedure. Do you see any kind of momentum for such a progress? Let's be optimistic. So far, as, as and we started out with a, a new um, German coalition government, Germany has not always been in the last couple of years or the last decade or so the most pro-European in words very often, but in terms of deeds, not necessarily forthcoming and also, also in terms of voting for certain kind of initiatives in the council. So I am optimistic as this new government takes over uh, next week, comes to, um, you know, takes, takes office next week. I think we can be more optimistic. On the other hand, we also need to be realistic. There is a finance minister, Mr. Lindner of the Liberal uh, Democrats, uh, the Free Democrats in Germany. And the question is, how will he act? And I think that is that is also a very, very perhaps the downside of this this coalition that's a coalition with the liberal government and i'm not so sure yet whether actually in practice this commitment to a federal europe I, i'm i want to be optimistic but whether it actually will hold or whether that new finance minister is actually going to be standing on the break once again and then i think um 
we might have really lost an opportunity because we need to push this for, forward and we need a mechanism. We need mechanisms and procedures in the European Union. We cannot go on with these also in, in times of crisis with ad hoc mechanisms. So far, one can say, okay, at the end of the day, the EU didn't really collapse. They always found some kind of compromise. But first of all, that has been to a significant, substantial cost to many citizens of the European Union in the past crises, very often prolonged, protracted, late, insufficient. It was always this brinkmanship. And what we need is stepping away from brinkmanship, having procedures in place to support. And, you know, in this, this um, cohesion and using the European semester is one, but also in terms of people don't like to call it anymore a transfer union. Let's call it automatic stabilized, whatever. We need a mechanism and we need an automatic mechanism. So we need to devise something that kicks in because to have, you know, whether it was the sovereign debt crisis, whether it was the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis and how EU member states behave, this cannot be the future if in the interest of EU citizens, we really need to do something. And that, I think, brings me also to a point in terms of COVID-19, which we might want to address because we've seen that welfare states actually, you know, grosso modo worked well. They worked the way they should. They kicked in automatic stabilizers in nation states. Short time work allowances were introduced even in countries that previously didn't have them. Really something was really social policy, not only against the market, as many people see social policy, but it was social policy for the market. Created demand and kept people employed. Additional programs, parental leave in some countries where the kids couldn't go to school or to nursery school or what, what have you. However, at the same time, what it also showed that there are some shortcomings. One is that the short-time work allowance in many countries didn't have a floor. So low-wage workers actually could not live off their short-time work allowance, right? In some countries they did, in others they couldn't. So this is something to reflect upon. But in terms of the EU and mobility and EU citizenship, what we need to think about is these people who are seasonal workers or care workers in some, so seasonal agricultural workers or care workers for long-term care in terms of them not being able to travel. And what does that mean for their social security, right? So if they travel to certain countries each year as agricultural, seasonal agricultural workers, Last year, they couldn't come. There was no short-time work allowance for them because they were not employed. Furthermore, in some countries, as in Germany, seasonal workers are excluded from social insurance, right? In order to make it more attractive for employers, farmers to hire and cheaper. Farmers save 40% of wage costs on seasonal workers because they are exempt from social insurance contributions, which then is a problem that these workers do not have unemployment insurance or cannot, not or, and cannot accumulate pension rights for the future. So it just imagine mm -hmm. a worker comes to Germany every year for three months of the year and during these three months of the year, works on a farm, receives minimum wage, let's say everything is okay, but he is not insured for old age. Mm -hmm. This is a real problem. And I think what COVID showed is first, that there's an issue in terms of freedom of movement, reliance, what, who are essential workers? Second, how do we cover some of these workers? Also in the care industry, where in some countries of continental Europe, we see, as I would call it, institutional exploitation of workers from Central and Eastern Europe. On the one hand, it's an opportunity for workers from Central and Eastern Europe to work 
in the care industry or in the agriculture. At the same time, it is really in terms of exemption from social insurance contributions, because sometimes or very often they are so-called solo self-employed. For example, the German care system, there are estimates that it is based on 300,000 workers from Central and Eastern Europe on certain kind of contracts that provide 24-7 care. And we know from the federal German social court that the minimum wage is applicable for also on-call hours, but we also know that it is not paid. So there are issues, and I think they, they became really apparent during the COVID-19 crisis. On the one hand, who does the care work when care workers cannot travel? And there might be an opportunity actually to improve the conditions of these workers now, as we have seen how essential they are for the functioning of welfare states and really think of what these Western European welfare states are doing in providing these lousy jobs for uh, workers, predominantly from Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, Martin, thanks for exposing all these uh, deficits and um, holes in the regulation. I think many of these uh, problems have been indeed exposed in the last two years, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic period and uh, the recession that um, it triggered. And um, as you explained before, a lot of uh, controversy uh, came up at the time of the previous crisis, the so-called Eurozone financial or debt crisis, as some people call it. But do we not have enough to put together this experience with a new vision on the agenda of this famous conference on the future of Europe? Because this was launched in order to ensure that somehow we, we can develop a vision of a qualitatively different uh, European Union, which is you know, much better meeting the needs of the citizens. Uh, this is my last question. I don't want to kind of abuse their time. I'm grateful for uh, the ideas you're sharing with us, but tell me what do you think about the potential uh, here? Do we have enough consensus? Do we have enough focus to project a qualitatively different model and maybe more harmonized uh, more uh, uniform uh, social model based on the concept of human dignity, as you described? Thank you. Thank you for this question. I, I think the social dimension, what we've seen in the last year, we have basically seen two two big issues. One is the COVID-19 crisis and how it exposed, um, you know, limits. On the one hand, shown the disparities that we've seen. At the same time, what we have seen in the last year is what is described as the climate crisis. And there is competition on the agenda. And what we really need to do is try to bring these two together and come up with a sustainable solution, sustainable in two ways, which is socially sustainable and environmentally sustainable. This will not be easy, but that is what we need to address. On the social dimension, I really think if we can get into this future document the acceptance that the charter of fundamental rights applies throughout the european union whether it is implementing eu law or national law so if we can get that that would be a big step forward and be perhaps the start of a qualitative different european union because what we really need to do is guarantee human dignity and so far in the european union sometimes this has been lacking whether it was in the crisis 2008 2000, 2010 if we think of some of the policies that were implemented which interestingly enough the european court of justice has not applied the charter of fundamental rights has said it is not about implementing EU policy when the Greek government had to sign a memorandum which had the effect that in some instances cancer treatment was no longer provided to some severely ill patients. This is not human dignity. This is not the Europe that I want. This is not a social Europe. And therefore, I think we really should take this conference as an opportunity and actually 
talk about human dignity. And I think that can perhaps be an optimistic way forward if we build it about human on human dignity and the concept of sustainability. Thank you very much, Martin, for these final words. This has been really a principled and passionate uh, conversation. Thanks very much also for the passion, because uh, we very rarely have the opportunity to discuss um, these issues um, before an audience. Uh, my guest today was Professor Martin Zeleib-Kaiser from the University of Tübingen, and we discussed the topical developments, very important current issues about social Europe from minimum wage through sustainability, as well as territorial cohesion. Thank you very much for your time, and I thank the audience for their attention. I hope to see you next time. Uh, the Fabs Talks podcast series continues. Obviously, you can reach it in many different podcast channels. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Fabs Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>